You're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. Very, very encouraging to hear of how God has been at work through our men's and indeed our women's all-in events this past week. Uh, Well, we come uh, to God's word, and so please do keep uh, Exodus chapter 32 out and open in your Bible. But uh, today's a big day uh, because today is the final day. Uh, of the Olympics. Uh, good news, we've got the Paralympics coming up in a couple of weeks. Can't wait for that as well. But uh, if you're watching this live, why don't you give us a quick reaction? Uh, if you've been tracking along with the Olympics, maybe even in the comments you could write what your favorite event has been. Uh, but uh, m- maybe you didn't know, but uh, while the Olympics has been taking place in Tokyo and people around the world have been watching it uh, from their lounge rooms, Uh, There was a a lesser-known Olympic event that took place last Sunday, uh, the Lockdown Olympics, uh, uh, in my home uh, with my family. Uh, All five of us, we had a nation and we made flags and we had songs to sing. This was Beth's uh, flag for Turkey. Not sure why, but has um, an appreciation for Turkey. And so glad that she's able to represent Turkey. Uh, Tom, uh, he represented Austria. Uh, We've got some Austrian heritage, and so he's kind of tapped into that. Uh, Then there was Sam, who's really getting into the basketball and the NBA, and so uh, he was USA all the way. Uh, Then there was uh, Ro, who's not officially a nation. Uh, She went as the, what is it, the Russian Olympic Committee, which is Russia, not Russia. Let the reader understand that one. Uh, And then finally, I I went as New Zealand, or Kiwilandia. Uh, and uh, here is my amazing uh, flag. Now, uh, we had events. Um, we, we began with uh, a swim, uh, just, just saying that even though we had 26 degrees during the week outdoors, the pool is certainly still uh, in the midst of winter. Uh, we had driveway handball. We had basketball up at the park nearby. Uh, and look, let me be honest, there were supposed to be five events Uh, But we effectively cancelled our Olympics, our lockdown Olympics, because of the amount of arguments, because of the amount of, we had to look at slow motion replays, there was feuds, there were battles between the different athletes. You know, COVID-19 couldn't stop the real Olympics, but family fighting finished ours. Now, I don't, again, I'm not sure how closely you've been following along with the Olympics, Uh, uh, not our lockdown Olympics, but the real Olympics, Uh, but so many highlights. Uh, I personally really enjoyed watching the decathlon, uh, 10 events over two days. These guys are warriors uh, in their sport uh, and really loved uh, the two Australians, the older uh, Cedric Dubler uh, and the way he helped uh, Ash Maloney uh, to get his way to that bronze medal. Uh, Some wonderful moments, some good things uh, to be thankful for that we've been able to watch together and cheer on uh, as a nation, uh, all that is been happening uh, through the Olympics. Hey, uh, we are going to come to God's word and uh, why don't we pray and ask God to work powerfully now in our midst. Father, thank you for, uh, thank you for uh, gifts like the Olympics, uh, opportunities to enjoy uh, good things 
um, uh, thank you for yeah the um, yeah the gifts that you've given people, uh, and thank you for the joy uh, of seeing um, marvelous performances of image bearers of yours. But Father, we are even more thankful that you're a God who speaks, uh, and we thank you for this word uh, that we are about to hear. Uh, and Father, by the illumination and power of your Holy Spirit, we ask you give us the understanding to know what it means, the will to put it into practice. And Father, we pray this through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Uh, and all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. Uh, well, today we do arrive at Exodus 32, and there's a very clear and obvious topic for us to discuss from Exodus 32, and it's the topic of idolatry. Idolatry. Uh, John Calvin in the 1500s said this about the human heart. He said, the human heart is a factory of idols. Every one of us, from his mother's womb, expert in inventing idols. The human heart is a factory of idols. You know, when it comes to idolatry, it's not just out there, the idols that captivate us, it's within. The idols that our hearts long to worship. You know, what is an idol? Uh, well, in Tim Keller's excellent book, uh, Counterfeit Gods, which is all about uh, idolatry, uh, he says this, uh, an idol is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give you. Uh, and so as he speaks about idolatry and as he speaks about counterfeit gods, he says that a counterfeit god is anything so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living. You know, idolatry is when we turn uh, things that aren't God into God. Uh, it could be bad things that we make them out to be God, but it can also be turning good things into ultimate things, things that are gifts, but rather than receiving them as gifts, we treat them as God. You know, this passage, as we unpack idolatry, uh, is a passage that is well known from the book of Exodus. Uh, and in this chapter, we will see the worship of a golden calf. Now, as we read through this story together, it might feel a little bit ridiculous to think that you have an issue with worshipping cows uh, of any description, let alone golden cows. But I'm convinced that this is a passage that we must hear and we must heed. In fact, in 1 Corinthians, and so before we even turn to Exodus, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, we learn that Israel's history and even the history of their idolatry is written down for our instruction, not just to know something from history, but to actually be shaped by as we see the dangers uh, in the midst of Israel, in the early years of their nation. As we see their idolatry, we are to learn from it. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 6 says this. Now, these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Uh, do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written. The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 
23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. There's a clear message for us this morning as we are confronted by the idols in ancient Israel to flee from idolatry, to hear the lessons and to heed the lessons of Exodus 32. And so as you turn back to Exodus 32, I want to encourage you to have a posture of humility that we as the people of God in the 21st century who stand this side of the New Testament, that we would be ready to listen, that we would be ready to identify the idols within our own hearts and that we would be ready to replace them with something better. Exodus, uh, for those that have only just joined us, uh, this is, we've been in this series for months uh, and there's only a, a few weeks left in this series, but it's all about the story of freedom. Uh, God's people, Israel, were oppressed as slaves in Egypt. God won them freedom miraculously by his mighty and outstretched arm, by blood that was shed. He rescued them. Uh, and in recent weeks, we've seen the lengths that God is going to, to dwell amongst this rescued people of his. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, we saw the instructions that God gave to Moses uh, for building the tabernacle, the dwelling place of God in the midst of Israel. Uh, and then last week, we saw, I guess, the preparation for the priests who would serve in the tabernacle, offering uh, uh, sacrifices to God that people could approach God and be forgiven by him. Now, just to remember the context, um, Moses, by the time we get to chapter 32, he's been up the mountain uh, with the Lord, hearing from him uh, for some 40 days, hearing profound things. And so our passage today is what's actually taking place back down the mountain. Uh, and uh, what I want you to see, let me give you the four points uh, heads up. You might even want to write these four points down. Uh, that might help you to track along as we work our way through the text. Uh, but number one, here's what we're going to see. We're going to see the folly of idolatry. Number two, the power of intercession. Number three, the call to repent. And number four, the need for atonement. Uh, there's where we are heading. And so the first thing that I want you to notice, the, the, the thing that is actually taking place back down the mountain while Moses is continuing to meet with the Lord upon the mountain, number one is the folly of idolatry. Uh, this is a passage I know. Uh, this is a passage I've reflected on often. Uh, and this is a passage I was grieved by the tragedy of what takes place at the foot of that mountain while Moses is meeting with Almighty God. Pick it up with me in Exodus chapter 32, verse 1. It says, When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. 
As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Isn't that a tragedy? There's this impatience. Where is Moses? He's been gone for a little while. And there's there's an arrogant demand that they make up. Make us gods. The the folly, even in that opening line, make us gods. What type of power does a god have that we have made with our hands? The tragedy in this moment is that God's people are forgetting God's rescue. You know, I think so often in our moments of idolatry, we also have a failure to remember we, 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 we forget the salvation that God has won for us. Now, Aaron gets this arrogant request from the people, make us gods. Does Aaron stand firm, being faithful to the Lord and to his word? Well, have a look at verse 2. So Aaron said to them, take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons and your daughters and bring them to me. Does he stand firm? No, he does not. He seeks to please the people and their request rather than God. He pleases people rather than the true and living God that has made himself known so clearly, so miraculously, so graciously. Aaron himself is complicit, clearly, in their idolatry. And so, verse 3 continues, all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron and he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Again, the, the, the folly, you have just gathered this gold and you have made it you have fashioned it and carved it and and put it into this representation of a golden calf now gold is a gift from god and yet they're not glorifying god with gratitude for the gift of gold but they're they're glorifying the gold itself as if the gold is god clearly the golden calf did not rescue them. How foolish it is. These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Now, what happens next? It kind of goes from bad to worse. Like in the next couple of verses, you'll see that there's an attempt to mix in true religion and the worship of the true and living God, yet doing it their way through their idol. Have a look at verse five. It says, When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. You know, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. Lord, that's the intimate name of the Lord that God has revealed to his people. And they, verse 6, they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. You see, the folly of what's taking place here is they're mixing in the worship of the true God. Let's have a feast to the Lord, the real God. And yet the object of their worship is a golden calf they've just fashioned with their own hands. You know, the Lord has even been prescribing to Moses up the mountain the 
the purpose and the place of building altars and offering sacrifices. And yet these people left to themselves do actions that are part of a true worship of the living God and yet doing it on their own terms. You know, we saw a few weeks ago the Ten Commandments in uh, Exodus chapter 20. And um, this is not just a, a commandment number one problem. What's commandment number one? You shall have no other gods. That's, you know, idolatry is, is, is when we have other gods. But this is also a commandment number two issue. Commandment number two is the idolatry of worshipping God using images. Worshipping God on our terms rather than his terms. You see, it's it's not just the presence of other gods, it's trying commandment number two, a clear disobedience of commandment number two, to worship the true and living God, but not on the terms and the parameters that he has and will set. You know, sometimes I hear people say, oh, you know, I like to worship God by dot, dot, dot. Now, that's good and appropriate if that's how God desires to be worshipped. It almost doesn't matter how we like to worship God. It matters how God wants to be worshipped. We worship him on his terms, not ours. We worship him based on what he has revealed to us in his word, not in images, not through statues, not through icons, not through gold or silver or wood or stone, not through created things but through his living and active word. The story continues, verse 7, and says, The Lord said to Moses, Go down for your people, whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. News breaks. The Lord lets Moses know what's taking place at the base of the mountain. Verse 8, They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to the land of Egypt, uh, sorry, and the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. You know, we've heard previously of how the Lord has seen his people in their affliction and he comes and he draws near and this whole story of freedom that God has won in the book of Exodus. We see the compassion of the Lord, and yet here God sees his people once again, and behold, they are a stiff-necked people. These are a people that have swapped the glory of the Creator God for images made to resemble creatures. They've swapped the glory of the redeeming God for images of things that have no power to save. These first nine verses reveal to us a tragic turn of events in the life of Israel, in the hearts of God's people. They have forgotten the God who has saved them. You know, I want to pause for a moment and uh, just by way of a heads up, we we have four points. The first point is the longest. We're going to move fairly quickly through the the following three points. But I want to pause here for a moment as we consider the, the folly of idolatry and want to spend some time digging a little bit into our own hearts and asking some hard questions of ways in which we are prone to worship idols. Uh, Tim Keller also talks uh, in his book about how the Bible uses three basic metaphors to describe how people relate to the idols of their hearts. They love 
idols, trust idols, and obey idols. Now, what are the things that you are loving more than God, trusting more than God, obeying more than God? Love, trust, and obey. Now, we could quickly jump to examples of, of obvious idols. Uh, again, less about the golden calf and some of the perhaps idols of our day and our age. Three obvious ones would be sex and money and power. But again, I want to dig a little bit deeper and uh, I've got uh, a, a, a list here and look, I'd be keen for our gospel communities this week to even do a bit of digging and asking some of these questions. Uh, we've got a list here that comes from another resource uh, from Tim Keller, uh, uh, Gospel in Life, and it's an idol chart. Uh, and I'm going to quickly read through uh, what is quite a comprehensive uh, list of, I guess, the different categories of idols. And look, there might be, uh, I'm going to read through quite a few, and a lot of them you might go, ah, that's not really my problem, but I'm very confident. There'll be one, maybe two, maybe three, or however many that you kind of go, actually, that actually presses deep into my own heart. And so the first one, um, consider this sentence. Life only has meaning, I only have worth, if I have power and influence over others. What's that called? Power, idolatry. Life only has meaning, I only have worth, if I am loved and respected by dot, dot, dot. What's that called? Approval, idolatry. Life only has meaning, I only have worth, if I have this kind of pleasure experience, a particular quality of life. What's that called? Comfort, idolatry. Uh, life only has meaning, I only have worth if I am able to get mastery over my life in the area of dot, dot, dot. What's that called? Control, idolatry. Uh, life only has meaning, I only have worth if people are dependent on me and need me. What's that called? Helping, idolatry. Life only has meaning, I only have worth if someone is there to protect me and keep me safe. Dependence, idolatry. Life only has meaning, I only have worth if I am completely free from obligations or responsibilities to take care of someone. What's that called? Independence, idolatry. Life only has meaning, I only have worth if I am highly productive and getting a lot done. Work, idolatry. Life only has meaning, I only have worth if I am being recognized for my accomplishments and I am excelling in my work. Achievement, idolatry. Uh, 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 my, sorry, life only has meaning, I only have worth if I have a certain level of wealth, financial freedom and very nice possessions. That's materialism, idolatry. Uh, I'll cut off the first bit of the sentence to, to abbreviate. Uh, next, I am adhering to my religion's moral codes and accomplishments in its activities. That's religious idolatry. Uh, this one person is in my life and happy to be there and or happy with me. Individual person, idolatry. I feel I am totally independent of organized religion and am living by a self-made morality. Well, that's irreligion, idolatry. Uh, my race and culture is ascendant and recognized as superior. Well, that's racial, cultural idolatry. A particular social grouping or professional grouping or other group lets me in. That's an inner ring idolatry. My children and or my parents are happy and happy with me. Family idolatry. 
Mr. or Miss Wright is in love with me. That's relationship idolatry. I am hurting in a problem. Only then do I feel worthy of love or able to deal with guilt. Suffering idolatry. Uh, my political or social cause is making progress and ascending in influence or power. Well, that's I- ideology, idolatry. And then finally, if I have a particular kind of look or body image, that's image, idolatry. It's worth pausing, is it not? Power, approval, comfort, control, helping, dependence, independence, work, achievement, materialism, religion, individual person, irreligion, racial, cultural, inner ring, family, relationship, suffering, ideology, image, idolatry, idolatry, idolatry. You know, it's worthwhile seeing lists like that. It's worthwhile even considering some of the ways those sentences are phrased and asking those questions of myself. And perhaps as you heard those and read those, you can identify perhaps some of the idols that are competing for your love, your trust, and your obedience. And I guess this week is an important time. It's an important time to confront the idols of our hearts, to name them out loud, to confess them to God, to seek to turn away from the idols that captivate our hearts. Now, we'll conclude uh, shortly with what it looks like to even replace the idols of the hearts with something that is better. But we're going to quickly keep moving through the text. And after seeing the folly of idolatry, uh, we continue to read. And number two, we'll see the power of intercession. Uh, Pick it up with me briefly. Uh, Chapter 32, verse 10, we we see that God is rightly angry. He's just said in verse 9 that there are stiff-necked people. Look at verse 10. Now, therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. Uh, God is angry. His anger is hot. His anger is holy. It is righteous. It is just. These are a stiff-necked people. And yet look at the power of Moses and his intercession. He asks God to remember his promises. He asks God, God, would you relent? Would you turn from your anger? Pick it up with me there, verse 11. It says, but Moses implored the Lord, his God, and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say with evil intent, did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and all this land that I have. Promise I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. You know, Moses intercedes, he implores the Lord and he appeals to the Lord based on God's character. You know, for for your sake, Lord, consider what the Egyptians will say. Consider what the nations will say. Your name, Lord, is at stake. And Lord, 
Remember your promises. Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, Israel. Remember your promises to your servants. Remember the covenant that you have made. Lord, would you relent? Would you turn? Would you not give us what we deserve? Remarkably, what a powerful verse. Verse 14, the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. The Lord hears the intercession of Moses. The Lord is convinced of all that Moses has said. The Lord knows his character. The Lord knows his promises. The Lord keeps his promises. The Lord doesn't give this stiff-necked people what they deserve for so quickly, deserting the Lord and God that made them, that loves them, and that saved them even after they had turned from him. You know, in this story, we'll see, though, Number one, we've considered the the folly of idolatry. Number two, we see Moses, the man of God, plead with God that God would relent. And yet there's still a responsibility on the people of God. And that leads to point three. And point three is the call to repent. It's one thing for God to back down from the judgment that they rightly deserve. But God's people must turn away from idols. They must repent of idols. Number three, the call to repent. Now, what is repentance? Repentance is turning from one thing to another. In this case, turning from the idol, turning from affection and allegiance, love, trust, obey, obedience of this golden calf and turning back to the Lord, turning back to the true and living God. Pick it up with me. Have a look at the the call to repent in the following section. Again, we'll move fairly quickly through this section, but uh, first of all, we see uh, that they are confronted. (laughs) The people are confronted in their sin. Uh, Verse 15 says, then Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hands, tablets that were written on both sides, on the front and on the back, they were written. The tablets were the work of God and the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, there is a noise of war in the camp. But he said, it's not the sound of shouting for victory or the sound of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing that I hear. And as soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and dancing, Moses' anger burned hot and he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf that they had made and burned it with fire and ground it to powder and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink it. They're confronted. Moses rightly is angry and Moses rightly destroys this idol and causes the people to to see the folly of all that they have done. You know, this singing and this dancing and this sin that is being celebrated at the foot of this mountain as this calf is worshipped and adored. The people immediately, as the man of God comes back down the mountain, are confronted with the reality of their sin. And yet, look what happens next. Verse 21, Moses said to Aaron, what did this people do to you that you have brought such a great sin upon them? And Aaron said, let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people that they are set on evil. 
For they said to me, Make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So I said to them, Let any who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me, and I threw it into the fire, and out, <laughs> and out came this calf. Like there's, oh, there's, there's some massive warnings there. Aaron is failing to take responsibility for his complicity in this sin. Yes, the people are wicked. Yes, they are stiff-necked. But Aaron, even in this, is like, well, what could I do? The people were coming at me. He's shifting the blame. And I think often in the midst of the idols of our own hearts that are exposed, we do anything. I, when I say we, I mean me. I think it's probably you too. I do anything I can to try to shift the blame. To, to not have as the first response, yeah, my heart is far from God. I need to turn back to Him. I kind of work out what are the reasons, what are the things that led me to that sin, led me to that idol, led me to that state of my heart. Now, they may be real factors that have been part of my story, and yet Aaron here shifts the blame. He doesn't take responsibility for the ways in which he has actually led this mutiny. He is is actually uh, totally complicit in this. And to even kind of, even his recollection of, Oh, yeah, we, we gathered the gold and then uh, it put, put it in a fire. And, oh, hey, it came out as a calf. Just after we've read about the detail of fashioning and carving and building and making and how deliberate this sin was. You see, repenting is, 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 is not just blame shifting and minimizing of sin. Repenting involves owning the sin, owning the external behaviors and owning the internal heart attitude and failure to love trust and obey the living and true God. And so the final section here in this call to repent, look at verse 25. It says, and when Moses saw that the people had broken loose for Aaron had let them break loose to the derision of their enemies. Then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro from gate to gate throughout the camp, and each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the words of Moses. And that day about 3,000 men of the people fell, and Moses said, Today you have been ordained for the service of the Lord, each one at the cost of his son and of his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. There's a, there's a call to, call to whose side are you on? Where will you stand? There's a great, great, great cost of this sin of idolatry in this moment. But where will you stand? Are you standing on the Lord's side and the side of righteousness? Or are you going to continue in sin? Are you going to continue in blame shifting and minimizing the sin that is before you? Are you going to repent? Are you going to turn to the Lord? You know, we go from the folly, number one, of idolatry, to the power of intercession. Number three, the call to repent. The fourth and final thing that we we see in the final section is the need for atonement. How is it possible for God to relent? How is it possible for God to not pour out complete and utter destruction upon all of the people of Israel? Well, let's have a look at this need for atonement. Verse 30. The next day, Moses said to the people, you have sinned a great sin. And now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. Perhaps. 
So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out uh, of your book that you have written. But the Lord said to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now go, lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will, make, I will visit their sin upon them. Then the Lord sent a plague on the people because they made the calf and one, the one that Aaron made. You know, we get to the end of this passage and there's a bit of uncertainty, but we see this deep need for atonement to be made, for forgiveness of sin to be offered. The people of God who've rejected him deserve nothing but his judgment, deserve nothing but his condemnation. And yet, good news of the gospel, the good news of the gospel that is hinted at all throughout Exodus is that forgiveness, is, forgiveness of sin is possible, that, be, that having our names remain in the book is possible through one who has atoned for our sin, through one who has lived a perfect life on our behalf, for one who has died a sacrificial death of atonement we spoke about atonement last week. Atonement is at one moment. We who are apart from God can be at one with God through the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ, through his perfect life, his sacrificial death, and his triumphant resurrection. This is what we've seen in Exodus. The folly of idolatry, the power of intercession, the call of to repent, and the need for atonement. You know, one of the things I think is most helpful as we think about replacing our idols is not just recognising that idolatry is bad, foolish, wicked, but actually seeing that in the gospel, God offers us something better. In Jesus, we see one who is worthy of our love, of our trust, and of our obedience. You know, one of my favorite verses is um, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9 to 10. It says this, uh, Paul's reporting about how so many people have heard that the church in Thessalonica have become Christian. And he says this, For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. It's a wonderful picture of turning and serving and waiting. Brothers, sisters, turn from the idols, the false and fake counterfeit gods that have captivated your hearts. Turn from them. Turn away from them. Identify them. Call them out. But as you turn from them, you turn toward the true and living God. And you serve Him. You serve Him who gives life and breath and everything. You serve him who is a true and better king. You serve him who is alive and who is mighty to save. And then finally, you wait. You wait for Jesus. You wait for Jesus, the one, the son of God, who's from, who will come from heaven, the one who previously has been raised from the dead. This is Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. 
God is angry in Exodus 32. God is angry at every moment where we have our hearts drawn away from him to the seduction of the idols that captivate us so easily. And yet the wrath and the anger that we deserve has been poured out on Jesus. Jesus has made it possible for us to be forgiven. Jesus has made it possible for us to be cleansed. And so waiting for Jesus is my life is no longer about me. My life is no longer about the idols of my heart. My life is about Jesus, waiting for Him, longing for Him, living for Him, seeking to please Him, loving Him, trusting Him, and obeying Him. You know, as I, as I conclude my own story, uh, many of you have heard parts of my story, and I'll regularly talk about um, a self-righteousness in my own background. But another part of my story is a massive big idol. As a teenager, soccer really was the number one thing in my life. I professed to be a Christian, but soccer was the thing that I loved, trusted, and obeyed. I remember my favorite soccer magazine, the editorial every month would say, uh, soccer is life and the rest is just details. And I remember reading the editorial. Who reads editorials? I read the editorial. And I remember kind of going, yes and amen to that footnote in the bottom of every editorial. Soccer for me was, was number one. And yet it came at a point when I was about 18, 19 years old when calendar clashes were happening more and more uh, with church and my soccer commitments and I decided to take some time off. Now, I was already a Christian, but that time that I took off from playing soccer was massive for identifying how big soccer was as an idol in my heart. Six months later, I actually considered going back and playing it at a high level, and, uh, but my, my heart was in a radically different place. It was no longer this idol, but it, soccer would have simply been a platform. It would have been uh, an opportunity for a job. It would have been an opportunity for, uh, for joy. It would have been an opportunity for many different things, but it was no longer an opportunity to worship the sport of soccer. I chose not to go back. I chose not to go back and play because I actually wanted to continue to serve in my local church and keep being part of making Jesus known amongst young people. I can never remember a new stadium opened up in the, the, uh, the, the, the National Soccer League uh, where I lived on the central coast of New South Wales. Remember, the opening game at that stadium was between the Canberra Cosmos and the Northern Spirit from Sydney. And I knew most of the players on the field and most of the players on the field I'd played with. Some actually sat on the bench uh, and were my understudy uh, in my role as a soccer player. I remember going to the stadium worried that perhaps I'd regret that I'd given up soccer, that I'd turned my back on this pursuit. But I remember sitting there watching the game, thankful, and thankful that I knew that I'd chosen something better. Again, not that it would have been wrong to go back to soccer as long as soccer wasn't an idol, but knowing that Jesus is better. Jesus is better than all the promises that are made by soccer, by whatever idols of the heart. You know, in more recent years, I've I've followed soccer in a way that I hadn't for a long time. I I coach my son's soccer team, but it's no longer a gift. Uh, Sorry, it's no longer God. It's a gift to be enjoyed, grateful to the true and living God. Brothers and sisters, can you identify the idols in your life? Well, then turn from them. Serve the living and true God. And brothers and sisters, let's wait for Jesus and long for his return. Let me pray. Our gracious God and loving Heavenly Father, we ask that you would give us just real insight into our own hearts this week. Father, help us to have honest conversations with ourselves May we do that in the context of community as well. May we encourage each other to identify idols. May we be ready to do hard work to get rid of them. Uh, And Father, we we pray this, that you would help us, that we would see that Jesus is better. 
we would see his sacrifice made on our behalf. We would see that he uh, rescues us from your coming wrath through his perfect life, his sacrificial death, his triumphant resurrection. Father, he is so much better than the empty promises. Father, may we love him. May we trust him. May we obey him. And Father, we pray this uh, in Jesus' name uh, and for your glory. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.